Well, it was a grim milestone today, 100 days since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Imagine 100 days with no end in sight. Take a moment to remember that a lot of people around the world thought, a lot of experts thought, that this war would end quickly, that Russia would win quickly. And they have not. And that's credit to to Ukraine, credit to Ukrainians, both there and around the world for the support that they've offered each other and the courage and bravery uh, that they've shown uh, on the battlefield as well. Still, I mean, the cost, tens of thousands of civilians and soldiers likely killed, millions forced to flee the country or internally displaced, factories, hospitals, bridges, schools, and residences destroyed. Ukraine says about 35% of its gross domestic product has been wiped out. And Western sanctions, of course, have targeted Russian oil and natural gas exports. The economic ripples of that are being felt around the world of the war too. But it's also having impact on other things, things that were normal course of business in Ukraine before this all happened. And one of those was surrogacy. If you didn't know, Ukraine has long been an international surrogacy hub. Uh, It marketed benefits, including the legal recognition of intended parents as legal parents for surrogacy, no legal rights really for surrogates, anonymous egg donors, no age limit for embryo implementation, no limit on the number of embryos that can be implanted and long-term embryo storage, as well as English-speaking clinics in the country. So what impact has the war had on the women in Ukraine acting as surrogates, as the couples who've hired them, and in some cases, the children born into war with no place to call home? Well, joining me now is Anna Fagenbaum. She's a professor in digital storytelling at Bournemouth University in Britain and the author of the forthcoming book, Fertile Fortunes, IVF and the Business of Babymaking. Thank you for your time tonight. No problem. Thank you for having me. Um, I don't think... Many listeners would know that Ukraine has, is one of the sort of the world's centers of surrogacy. Uh, why is it one of the places where it really does thrive as an industry? So there's a few global factors that kind of led to the rise of the Ukraine um, as a hub for surrogacy. Um, one of the biggest ones was that the kind of former hubs in Thailand and India um, and a few other places globally Um, had been shut down in around 2015 uh, because there was a lot of controversy over those industries, largely because it was foreigners, um, mainly kind of white and Western foreigners that were coming in um, using surrogates and and then leaving, and the ways that the surrogates there were treated, and in particular and importantly, the way that the kinds of agents um, that that did the matching and that organized the labor of the surrogates uh, were quite exploitative, and the working conditions were quite poor. A number of documentaries were made on this, a lot of lo- newspapers did reports, and it became kind of easiest, rather than trying to fix those industries, to just b- put bans on foreigners having surrogacy done in those countries. And so this left a kind of gap in the market um, for particularly foreigners um, and Westerners uh, where they they needed surrogates that were no longer being provided by these other countries that had been hubs for a long time. Uh, Ukraine didn't have legislation against surrogacy, so it was a place where it was legal. Um, and in addition to this, you know, Ukraine had a has somewhat suffering economy, um, but it also had the benefit in the eyes of, of white Western people that wanted to have white babies, that the surrogates were were white. There were a lot of white egg donors and uh, made it feel, as we've seen in the way the refugee crisis has played out, there was this sense in which it was uh, closer to, to home. There was more of this sort of um, genetic match, even though often there's not really one. Um, and so it, it was 
very easy for Ukrainian surrogates and Ukrainian egg donors to be marketed to these Western markets, uh, you know, with these kind of blonde, blue-eyed, young uh, women. I imagine, too, I mean, Ukraine, I've been there. I mean, the, the medical system is relatively good. Uh, there are some benefits there overall just for, from that aspect. And I imagine I gather Russia and Georgia were other areas, too, that were uh, that were popular. It, it's huge business, isn't it, Anna, for, for those who uh, those who are looking for surrogates? Yes. And I, that that uh, not only is the healthcare good, but it's also more affordable. And often you're getting the same, if not better quality and certainly more attention when you go in as a private user of some of the services there. Um, it's a little bit complicated what services you get done in your home country and then what happens um, in, in that country. But you want your surrogate to be well looked after. And so if you have a really good medical establishment, then you um, you know, you feel like you're in safer hands. Uh, and this this was also the case in, 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 in Russia and Georgia. And also, you know, Thailand also has a, an incredible you know, health system. It, uh, clearly, a war in, in, in any country is going to be disruptive. But if you have women, you have surrogates in that country at the time, what kind of impact has this had? And what is it exposed about this whole industry? So yeah, the impacts have been sort of threefold. We've got the question of what happens to surrogates, so um, to people who are already uh, carrying someone's child, whether that is in early stages or late stages, and obviously depending on the stage, it's slightly different. Then you've got what happens to to the the, the fetuses, the intended babies, and then you've got what happens to what are called the intended parents, so the the, the people who will uh, adopt and and who who have contracted the surrogate and who will who will adopt the baby. Um, or who, whose baby it is. It's kind of contractually difficult, the terminology. Um, so for surrogates, if they were in a place and they needed to evacuate, if they were early in their pregnancy, they had to think about things like, you know, where's their medical care going to come from? Um, who's going to look after them? Are they going to be able to get their payments? Are they going to be able to, to, you know, have all of their needs met? Because often surrogates are put up in, in flats or they're looked after, they have regular checkups. So all of these things, of course, are disrupted in a war zone. If you have a surrogate who's later term, who's going to deliver soon, then of course you have uh, the question of where are they going to deliver the baby? Where is the care going to be provided? And then going into the babies, what's going to happen after the baby is delivered. So the way that the law works in the Ukraine, uh, it's kind of near, near immediate that the intended parents become the parents. But if the parents aren't there, you enter a little bit of, of, an, of a kind of um, abyss uh, where it, it, the, the surrogate is not the parent legally of the baby, but the intended parents aren't there to go through the process of, of claiming or taking home their baby. And so you, you have these babies who are, are sort of lost in contractual mess, uh, as well as being you know, stuck inside of a, a war zone. And we actually saw some very harrowing images of uh, entire sort of material Maternity units being moved into bomb shelters. And then for intended parent parents, you've got, as, as lots of people are trying to flee, you have sets of foreigners who are trying to, to enter or at least to get to the borders so that they can finish off these arrangements and they can take home these babies that they you know, have been waiting for, uh, not just for the time of the term, which is important for understanding why people choose surrogacy. Often people who go end up going for the option of surrogacy have been trying to have a baby for three, five, 10 years. And so these are sometimes people who, you know, when we see these news stories and it seems very desperate, that's because they've spent 
huge, huge years of their lives, lots and lots of, of money, time, emotional distress, trying to even just get to this point where they could be parents. Does this leave the women in Ukraine at this point, in some senses, not in control of their own bodies in the middle of a war zone, not control in full control of their own decisions in the middle of a war zone? There's been sort of mixed stories on how much agency surrogates have had. Um, uh, the, where there becomes a conflict is when the um, so that so whatever the kind of agency is that is arranging the contract has a disagreement with what the surrogate wants to do and where they want to be. So sometimes surrogates have wanted to um, stay where their family is, um, even though that that might be risky. Sometimes they've wanted to flee, but not necessarily to the place where either the agents or the intended parents want them to flee because they want to go where their networks are. They want to go where they have, you know, where they have family and support. Uh, and so you can, there's been these situations where the, that, that conflict or that disagreement um, has to be resolved. Um, it, it seems to me from what I uh, have read from people who are working much more closely on the ground with this, that, um, it, that, that they're trying to, to do things that are in surrogate's best interest, that there are efforts being made to um, try and have that trump. But even if the surrogate ends up kind of getting to make the decisions or do the things that she wants, she might be breaking contract and therefore might um, suffer kind of financial consequences. Or if she decides to leave or go to a place where it's not going to be easy for the baby to be um, given or handed over whatever to the intended parents, then what happens to the, to the baby and what happens to her relationship with that baby? Uh, and this, this is very, very complicated, right? Emotionally, physically, uh, and contractually. I'm speaking with Anna Feigenbaum. She's a professor in digital storytelling at Bournemouth University and author of the forthcoming book, Fertile Fortunes, IVF and the Business of Baby Making. We're talking about Ukraine, which had become a hub for surrogacy worldwide for a number of reasons, and the impact of the war in that country uh, on that entire uh, industry. When we come back, um, uh, Anna has just written an op-ed for the Global Mail that talks a bit about broader implications of this and, and how it might be an opportunity for reform within this uh, very lucrative, but again, as she's pointed out, uh, in this situation, a very complicated affair. We'll be back with that. I'm speaking with Anna Fagenbaum. She's a professor in digital storytelling at Bournemouth University in the UK, author of the forthcoming book, Fertile Fortunes, IVF and the Business of Baby Making. Uh, we've been discussing surrogacy and Ukraine. Ukraine had become one of the world's hubs for surrogacy in, in recent times due to a number of reasons, bans in other countries that had been hubs in the past, and just what impact the war is having, how complicated it's been, certainly for uh, for women who are, who are already under contract as surrogates who are in the country. Um, and just for Canadian listeners, there are some different rules that apply to those looking for surrogates uh, uh, that make that 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 are different from country to country. And Canada is a bit particular that way. Yeah. So in Canada, you, you have um, what is allowed is is a kind of benevolent surrogacy, so expenses can be covered, but there and and contracts are are, are made in those situations. But it's not a paid form of labor in the way that we would think of a normal job, um, and and this comes with you know, pluses and minuses, depending on who you are talking to. Um, at, at, whereas in, in the Ukraine, uh, as well as in the United States, um, it is legal and it is a, a, a paid um, gig. It's it's a, a job to be right. a surrogate. Um, it's much more expensive in the United States, which is one of one of the other reasons why people go to, to the Ukraine rather than going to the U.S. So lots of Canadians um, will do surrogacy in the U.S., 
uh, because there's a much higher, because it's paid, there's a much higher, you know, supplier, there's many more people doing the job of being surrogates than there, than there is in Canada because of those different arrangements. So what do you think this entire, um, this, you know, I, I was reading an article in the New York Times recently, of course, where agencies didn't think the war was coming, like a lot of Ukrainians weren't sure that there was going to be an invasion this time around, uh, were telling prospective couples that everything was okay uh, with their surrogates and so on. What sort of, what is this exposed about this industry and, and what might need to be done to, to fix some of the issues? Yeah, well, one of the things um, Alison Matlock, who's doing this, these wonderful dispatches uh, from the UK and surrogacy reports, um, and one of the things that we were talking about is how actually we had just had COVID, and COVID also stranded uh, surrogates and stranded babies. It didn't have the same kinds of threats, level of threats to well-being as war does. But these agencies have only just gone through this on a global scale of knowing that this can happen, of knowing that surrogates can be stranded from medical care, can be stranded from intended parents that be born in this kind of limbo state because intended parents can't come in to go through the process of becoming the parents of the baby. So it's not like the industry doesn't know that this is a possibility. And there had been previous natural disasters uh, or climate change disasters, how we look at it, um, that had left similar kinds of situations where, uh, where, where intended parents were not able to enter a country and surrogates were not going to keep the babies, where, so the babies got stranded. So we know in this industry that this can happen. Um, it is obviously very, very expensive to try and um, safeguard against all of these all of these kinds of things and because there hasn't been a kind of legal or a regulatory response it's a bunch of companies and these are for-profit companies um trying to figure out what the best thing to do is right and so generally the thing that is is you know going to save the most money is is the way that things are going to work and this is this is one of the major pro- problems on a broader scale of having these industries be so uh, driven by by profit uh, and so a regulatory response w- would need to do, I think, um, kind of three things. And the first is to really see surrogacy as labor and to then treat it uh, as we would um, protect other people's kinds of rights in a job and other people's agency in a job so that we we might even see something like surrogates unions uh, so that, that there's a more agency and autonomy and recognition of labor as work. And I'm sure anybody um, who has, has carried a child knows that labor is work. Um, and that you uh, also need uh, to have rights for intended parents confirmed earlier. So this this kind of idea from the olden times where like you have to physically be present to be able to do certain kinds of control processes. And we're already seeing that shift a little post-pandemic or if we're post um, that we then that that we can do this in other ways, right? We can we can we can use other kinds of systems for making sure that attended parents are the the actual parents without having to kind of physically be in the same space. And so we need to think through, I think, the way that those kinds of transitions happen. But of course, with that, if the intended parents can't physically be there to be with a baby because of a situation that's left them stranded, then we also thirdly need arrangements so that babies don't end up left in limbo. Uh, and right now, those arrangements have been, from my understanding, quite ad hoc. So a lot of times actually staying in, in maternity wards or staying with um, people that work for these these agencies, these brokers, 
Uh, and so that's something that, that actually a, a kind of safeguarding could be put in place around that. I mean, obviously, these kinds of situations would never be ideal and would always be probably pretty traumatic for everybody involved. But we could definitely have uh, more regulatory systems that exist outside of this for-profit model, or at least that, that work in tandem with it, uh, to, to, to make sure that, that rights are protected for everybody that needs those protections. Anna, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me.